talk to you today about the double-edged sword of God's forgiveness of sin. We'll get to what that means momentarily. In fact, I'll just give you a hint right now of what that means. If you notice the two scriptures, or at least the two places where Phil read from this morning, he told you that it was Mount Sinai in that Exodus reading, and they were preparing to receive the Ten Commandments. But what I hope you saw is that Moses went up and God came down. But the most telling thing about God coming down is, is his message. His message was, don't let anyone else come up here. I'm a holy God, and if you come up here, the phraseology was break out. You know, the Lord may break out upon you. And then Phil read to us from John 3.16. John 3, 16 and 17 says God gave his son. And in that 17th verse it says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world might be saved through him. Look at those two thoughts. Don't let them come up here or the Lord may break out on them. You, you hear the anger and the wrath of God in that towards sin. But then Jesus comes along, and Jesus, as he's coming, John, the gospel writer, says that, that, that what we need to remember is that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn us. He sent his son into the world to save us. Many of you will remember from the summer, the late summer of 2021, the story, and you will recall the video most likely, you probably saw some of it this week if you turned your TV on at all, of the mother who was pushing her child, her baby, in a cart, in a stroller. And this 20, 19, 20-year-old 20 individual had stolen a car, and he lost control of it, and he comes down the road, and remember that the mother pushes herself in the cart all the way up against a building wall, and she can't get out of the way of that car, and eventually she gets hit, uh, actually, by the windshield, uh, the, the side of the stroller gets hit a little bit, and the mother goes flying some and comes down. Her immediate concern is for that child. How many of you remember that story when that happened? Okay, well, it was on the news, happened in Los Angeles. This week, something strange happened. The young man, well, well first, I guess I should fill in in between. He didn't get much of a sentence, not a sentence that you would have expected for such dangerous, life-threatening activity. But that young man who stole the car this week, in summer 21, earlier this week was killed. Uh, they found him on the side of a road. He had been in a, some type of a shooting, and he was killed. And the mother, who got in the way of that car, who he hit with the car, made a statement. And I want to read to you one part of the statement that I listened to, and, and I really thought fit with what we're going to talk about today. She said this, the universe delivered the justice that we weren't given in court, but a much harsher punishment than he'd have been dealt in a court of law. The universe delivered justice that she did not receive in court. Now, you can get into the politics of this and why the sentencing laws are changing in our country and so many people are able to get away with so much or at least get out of jail without doing much time or whatever you want to say. But here's the point I want you to get from that. 
When we are wronged, and I pointed this out last week, we're in a series on forgiveness. When we are wronged, there is a debt that is created, at least to us. Somebody's done something to us. And, and no matter what anyone can think, we want justice served until that debt is paid. And for most people, if we are the injured party, our sense of justice is skewed by what's happened to us. We want sometimes to just forget about it, and other times we want to just move on with it, and most of the time we want to be sure that we get what? Even, right? And sometimes we want to be sure that we extract as much pain out of that individual as we think they extracted out of us. You know, a number of years ago, and the church is tired of this story, but a number of years ago, almost 20 years ago, I got sick, went to the hospital, yada, yada, yada. But I was on my deathbed. I was nearly died. And it was all because of a medical mistake, a, a bunch of medical mistakes, but one in particular. And I was laying in the, the ICU over at Altman Hospital, and because my wife worked there, it was big news amongst the employees and everybody that worked there, you know, what happened, everybody's chatting about it, and how could this happen? And, and lo and behold, the doctor who made the big mistake, his wife and his daughter <laughs> worked there, they came into my room, and they brought me pizza and something else, I can't remember what, and some donuts. And I was trying to be as kind as I could, but the day before, I'm looking at life and death, and I'm lying there in this bed, and they brought me pizza and, and some donuts and something else, I can't remember what. And I've got to tell you, I know what was going through my head. Just leave me alone. You know, you almost killed me. And you're bringing me pizza. And, and then later that afternoon, the doctor showed up, and he had a book. And he wanted to give me a gift. It was a book, and it had to do with how to deal with your feelings when you're really angry. And oh my, yeah, that, that didn't go over too well. And unfortunately, I have to report to you that I told him so. And why was that? Because I felt wronged. I felt like somebody had taken something from me. I felt like somebody owed me, and the sense of righteousness wasn't going to be paid. Justice wasn't going to be served with pizza, donuts, and a book. In the Old Testament, we often see God the way that Phil presented him, or the, the writer Moses presents him in Exodus 3, that, that he is coming down and you better not get in his road, or he may break out upon you. God is the God of holiness, the God of justice. And when you understand what that means, you might get a picture that God's not a good God uh, necessarily, but he is certainly a holy God, and he is a perfectly holy God. Hold that thought. I want you to be sure you get it. Perfect. When God says he is holy, it's not just a little bit holy. It's not a little bit good. God is holy. Totally 100%. Righteous holy and just. Listen, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 11, 44 to 45. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Do not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You will be holy for I am holy. Now when you understand what God has just said, remember what I said to you? God is perfectly holy. And he's saying to us, you be holy 
for I am holy. That is a very big set of shoes to fill. Speak to all the congregation of the people. This is Leviticus again. Say to them, you will be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Church, understand this God is perfection. And his holiness is perfect. And when he says, you be holy as I am holy, here's the trick. We can't be. We are sinful. But he is. You will remember in the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Most sinful places ever. And God comes down and he says he's going to wipe them out. And Abraham has this conversation with God. You remember the conversation? God says, God, you are holy and just. If there's 50 people there that are righteous, will you hold back? And God says, okay, for 50, I'll hold back. How about 45? Okay, for 45, I'll hold back. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And we get to that point, and God says, even for 10, I'll not wipe them out. Now, here's the point, church. You may think, well, what's the difference between 9 and 10, right? And you're missing the point. The point is that God is so holy and so just that he will hold the unrighteous accountable, but you can also rest just as assured he will not hold the righteous accountable for anything, and they shouldn't be held accountable for anything. And in the middle of that whole conversation that Abraham has with God, he says this to God, listen to it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. What he just said was, you can't destroy good people. Sure, the wicked people, they, they got their punishment coming, but you would never, you're God, you're holy, you're just, you would not allow good people to suffer for what bad people have done. And look at what he says. Abraham says, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You see, a holy God is a just God. A holy God does the right thing. And, and Abraham is pleading with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. If God is just, he must punish wrongdoing. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah got to be wiped out. Sin must be dealt with. And it's going to be dealt with perfectly because God is perfect. God is holy. And if God is holy, you and I know this inside secret, how could he ever forgive any of us, right? How could he ever forgive any of us? Because we know we're sinners. We know we're wrong. Not because he's so holy, do I say that to you, but rather because we are so sinful, do I say that to you. I want you to look for a minute at Exodus 19, verses 23 to 24. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come in, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Church, God's very nature as being God, as being a holy God, means he cannot overlook sin 
or evil. Remember last week we talked about brushing things under the carpet. God's just. A holy and just God will deal with wrong things. Moses says, tell the people don't go up there because God will break out against them. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children and children to the third and fourth generation. If you paid attention to what I just read to you, it says God's patient, he's slow to anger, he's full of grace, he's got mercy. He'll forgive sin and transgression, but. Church, when you read but in the scripture, it's a big but usually. And here's the big but. He will by no means clear the guilty. And he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children and their children. So you read this, and if you're like me, you're going to ask yourself this question. Who and what exactly is this God? Is this God a lover? Is this God a hater? And if you ask that question like I just did, you really ask the wrong question. But most of us ask that question. Who is God? Is he the God that's going to hold us accountable for all our sin? Or is he the God that's going to forgive our sin? And the answer always depends upon where you've been and your perspective and how you see God and what you've learned. And what it ought to be is what God's told us about himself. I've been dealing a lot lately with my friend Ed, my good friend Ed. When I was uh, in college for a short period of time, I lived with Ed and Sue in a back room on the first level of their house. Now, if you were to ask me what that room looked like, I would tell you that it had French doors that opened in the room like this, and there were you know, three walls, one on the back end of the house and two here, a bathroom through a door right here, and that there were two windows in that room. There was a window right there and a window right here. And just this past week, I had to see Ed, and when we went to go in the back room to do some business, I was so surprised. I'm standing there looking, you know, that, that's been what? Mercy, how many years has that been, you know? It's been about 40 years ago. <laughs> And I've been in and out of that room a lot since then, but you just don't pay attention to these things. There's a whole row of windows, and a whole row of windows. It was built to be a sunroom. It's all windows. But that's not what I remembered seeing. And many of us struggle with this God because our perspective is skewed by what someone's told us, what we've learned in some Sunday school class, we see this angry, wrathful God, and that's the way we saw him when we were little. Maybe we watched a movie or something, and we set up our opinion and our thoughts all on the basis of our perspective about him. But then Jesus comes along. and We remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should never perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And now we've got an issue, don't we? 
Because that angry, wrathful God in the person of Jesus has become a lover. John 3.36, which Phil read earlier, whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. Who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And we say, aha, there it is again, he's back. He said he was a lover. God loved the world. He sent his son into the world so that we could be saved. He doesn't want to condemn us, but look right here, just 20 verses later. The son, if you don't believe on him, the wrath of God will remain on you. And what we do is we tend to think these things are in opposition to each other, right? We, we tend to think God's got this dual personality, and we all know that James says a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. But what we fail to see is that God's not unstable, that actually these two things with God are not in opposition to each other. They actually need each other. Stay with me. The love of God needs the wrath of God. Most of us, when we go back to that sunroom of where we've learned about God and we remember the picture that we were given, that can screw us in our relationship with God for life because we got it wrong. If you don't get this piece here, right here, real good into your soul today, if you've never had it before, you will live your life missing so much of what God wants to say to us. God's love... And God's anger are not opposites to each other. They're actually magnets that attract to each other. If you can't see it, you'll probably not see much of life right. And you certainly will never see forgiveness right. I have a friend who has raised, friends who have raised their children. And by and large, they never said no to their children. And they are reaping the whirlwind of that right now. They've been stolen from, they've been lied to, they've been spit at, they've been called names, treated them like gold. Never said no, never offered any discipline. And church, if all you ever have is a God who is love, 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 and God is love, you'll live your life like a spoiled child. And you will mature as a Christian like a spoiled child. But on the other hand, if your God is always the God that sits up on Mount Sinai and says, don't you dare come up here. If you come up here, I may break out on you and my wrath will be upon you. And if that's the only God you ever see, you will probably live your spiritual life as an abused child. But put them together, put them together, and you will begin to see God's love expressed in a deep way. Now stay with me. In the book of Matthew, you'll remember that the man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And there's a second one like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can I just 
for a minute tell you something that you probably have never thought of before. Love and anger or love and wrath, they are not opposites. The opposite of love is hate. The opposite of love is hate. And it's so important that we understand that when it comes to our understanding of God. God does not hate us because we sin. God loves us. He may be angry about the sin, but he's not angry at us. He's not going to hate us because we sin. I have known far more families than I wish I had known who have had a drug addict in their family. I said that word funny, didn't I? Drug addict. Drug addict in their family. And I know that some families are unique, some families are different, but there's one thing that I've observed with every single family that I've seen that had a drug addict in them. Mom and dad don't hate their child. They love them. They want absolutely the very best for them. They will be angry as angry can be about the addiction. But what fuels that anger is their love for their child, their love for the addict. And if you think about that for a minute, church, you'll begin to understand a little bit more deeply what I'm trying to tell you about God. God always loved us. God has always loved us. But God has been angry about what Satan has done with sin in this world. God's love and God's wrath, God's love and God's anger about sin, they go hand in hand because that is what drove Jesus to the cross. That's where I get to my bottom line for today. Jesus' death is God's love for you expressed in his anger at sin. I want you to think about this next statement. The only place where God's forgiveness of sin makes sense is on the cross. Remember, you wrong me, you are indebted to me. And I will determine when that debt is paid. And you can mail me money, <laughs> you can replace the car that you destroyed, you can restore all the lies that you said about me, you can stop the gossip and go reach out and touch everybody that you got that gossip to and try to correct it. I will determine when the account is settled. That's how we are. But Jesus and his infinite love for us and his deep, deep anger at sin knew that we could never pay the price for our own sin because the price for our own sin is death. And that wouldn't pay the price because Satan knows and we know that we're not righteous, but Jesus is. And because he's holy and just, perfectly holy and just, no matter how deep our sin is, no matter how wide our sin is, no matter where we've been or what we've done or who we've been with or how we've accomplished it, a perfect and holy God can pay the price for that sin. God's angry about sin, 
But he's not angry with the sinner. God loves the sinner. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and verse 25, listen to these verses I'm going to read to you here for a minute. Death, the death of Jesus is God's love, and it's expressed in his anger at sin. Listen to Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Jesus does for us? You know what he's doing this very minute for us? He's interceding for us. Now you, you may say, well, that, that means that, that Jesus is praying for us. And you'd be right. But it's so much more. He's standing before the throne of his holy and righteous Father. And he is saying, on behalf of those that have accepted Christ in their life, when you look at Joel Adkins, you look at me, and I'm your perfect son. When you look at and you fill in your name, you're looking at me, your perfect and holy son. And I love Joel Adkins, and I love so-and-so, and I love so-and-so so very much, and I was so upset about their sin that my love drove me to the cross where they belonged. He interceded for us. So when the writer of Hebrews says, he always lives to make intercession for them, that's right. God's love is so deep, and his anger at sin is so bad, that he took our punishment on the cross. In the book of 1 John 2.2, it says this, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the stand-in. For my sins. He slipped on my shoes and went to that cross. He put on my sin and went to that cross. Paul wrote in Romans 8 verses 34 and 35 these words. Who will condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Well, I want you to hear real close. Paul said he's interceding for us and nothing can separate us from that love that Christ expressed for us on the cross. Yeah, he's angry at sin. But he's just as deeply in love with us that he would give his own life on our behalf. So that we would not lose him and he would not lose us. Jesus' death is God's love for you expressed in his anger at sin. I want you to understand, church, that Christ on the cross of Calvary becomes our, and I'm going to use the word legal here, he becomes our legal advocate. All that interceding, all that propitiation, all that standing in the gap that God did when Jesus went to the cross of Calvary because he was angry at sin and in love with us. He becomes our advocate. What does that mean? Remember that angry, uh, wrathful picture that we read earlier today in the Old Testament? Don't you come up here. If you come up here, the Lord's wrath may break out upon you that was all legal that was law 
You will live, think about it, they were going up to get the Ten Commandments. This is how you will live. And we know that the Ten, Ten Commandments didn't cut it. They had to, to grow those things into a massive encyclopedia or library of this and that and do's and don'ts. All of that was the law. And all the law ever did was condemn. Oh, you did it again. You did it again. You're going to have to go to the temple. You're going to have to go to the tabernacle. The priest is going to have to offer a sacrifice again and again and again. And the minute that that sacrifice to sin was made, somebody would step out of line before they got out of there. It's that old line you've heard before, you know, where a person wakes up in the morning and says, Dear Lord, I'm a good person. <laughs> I do all the right things. I follow your will. I study your scriptures. I try to be good to people, and I try to, to do everything that's good. But Lord, in a minute, I'm going to step out of this bed and put my feet on the floor. That's when it starts, right? On the cross, Jesus becomes our advocate legally. And what that means, hear me on this, and this, this line here, I know I keep telling you there are important things for you to know, but this one really matters. This one really matters. That law that in the Old Testament condemned, that very same law, Jesus now uses to demand, not that we be condemned, but that we be accepted. And I'll illustrate to you why. I've told you he's our advocate, he intercedes for us, he's our propitiation for sin, he stands in the middle, he stands in the gap. Here's the point, church. Jesus knew what God's law was. He helped arrange it. He knew that, that this holy, perfectly holy, perfectly just God had set up the rules. He also knew that we couldn't stand. He knew that we were condemned before we took our first breath. But he also knew that he loved us. So when you get to the New Testament and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever lives and believes in him should not perish but could have eternal life. It's because Jesus, our advocate, our stand in the middle, our go-between, our propitiation, whatever you want to call it, Jesus stands before the throne of God and says, they couldn't pay the price, but I, your perfect son, your holy and just son, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, never sinned, never have, have even hinted at it, I stand in their place. And what that law stood to condemn them, that, that condemnation was on me when I died upon that cross. And I did that because I loved them. You see, Jesus' death on the cross was God's expression of his love for us and his anger at sin. And I'm going to close with a, a single verse. It's 1 John 1, 9. And that bottom line is going to go away because I want you to see this next verse. In 1 John 1, 9, here's what John wrote down for us. If we confess our sin, he, he being Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to see God's justice? It's right there. 
when we confess our sins to the advocate, to the propitiation, to the perfect and holy Son of God, when we confess our sins to him, that holy, just, do you see the word? It's there. He's faithful. We love that. But he's also just. And what that means is that he will forgive. You see, here's the dilemma. And this week and and next week, these sermons are meant to build on what's going to come the week after that. Here's the dilemma. You and I need to learn how to forgive, but we are not holy and just, are we? We're going to exact as much. And you say, well, I would never do that. Yeah, but that's through your eyes. That's through your lens. A holy and just God who is perfect in every way. When we confess our sins to him, when he went to the cross and died when he didn't have to, when there was no punishment upon him, but he took our punishment upon him, when there was nothing he had done to deserve that, but he took it for himself, that holy and just God is able to forgive. And he is able to forgive justly, perfectly, in such a way that our sins are forgiven and our lives are able to be cleansed from all righteousness. And in closing, I want you to go back to what God said. I am holy. Be ye holy. And you all said, you know, we can't do it. But when Jesus went to the cross, when our advocate, when our propitiation, when our intercessor went to the cross, he could. And he presents us before the Father, righteous, and get this, holy. I'm going to walk out of here today. And that dog's going to tick me off. And I'm going to get bad feelings towards him. Or what are you going to walk out of here and say, kind of long today, preach. (laughs) Or somebody here is going to do something. You're all nervous now, right? Nobody's going to say anything to me as you leave. But I'll get ticked off for some reason. I'm already ticked off the Steelers aren't playing in the playoffs. But I'm sinful. I'm not holy. I'm not just. And that's going to happen as long as I walk this earth because I have a sinful nature. But God, who is perfect, Jesus, who is perfect in his righteousness and in his justice and in his love for us, presents us before the throne as he is holy and just. He's the only one that can. So let me ask you, have you confessed your sins? Now, he doesn't want an itemized bill. He doesn't want a line-by-line statement from us. But he does want us to ask. He wants us to acknowledge that we're sinners and that we need forgiveness. And when we do that and we ask, he who is righteous and just will forgive our sins will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and present us holy before the throne of grace. Church, if you've never done that, do it today. Couldn't be a better time. We will sing together before the throne of God above.